this pipeline and we get we burn all the oil in the tar sands in Canada, it's game over for the climate. You know? So we wrote stop the XL pipeline. Activists working for a livable climate celebrate what looks like a victory over the Keystone XL pipeline and a new segment, Side Eye, all about the crazy presidential race and the crazy media coverage of it. I did not expect that this would be one of the awesome things about covering Jeb Bush running for president, but this is a surprising and kind of awesome thing that he does. He makes really weird noises. I mean, it started when he made the sound of Twitter. All that and more coming up next. And welcome to Thursday's Community Watch and Comment, the on-the-ground edition for November 5th, 2015 on WPFW 89.3, Jazz and Justice Radio in the nation's capital, on the ground and on the ground show.org are devoted to coverage of social justice activism on the streets and in the suites of power. I'm Esther Averam. I'm Chantal James. Wake up, Chantal. <laughs> Today we're on the ground with activists for the environment and humanity's survival to talk about a victory. The big news this week is that the company TransCanada asked the Obama administration to postpone consideration of its proposal to build the Keystone XL pipeline, which would bring carbon-intensive tar sands from oil sludge from Alberta, Canada, to Texas for export. And as it turns out, that request sounds pretty much like the deal is dead because President Obama has responded that he has no intention of granting an extension to a process that has already taken years. We'll be talking to 350.org later in the show. So we'll have a lot coming up for you in this less than an hour, including a new segment, Side Eye, about the crazy presidential election in this country. But we'll start with our headlines. First, starting uh, with a follow-up from our program last week on attacks on Planned Parenthood and a woman's right to choose. The Daily Coast is reporting that even though Republicans could not pass a bill to defund Planned Parenthood, could not shut down the government to defund Planned Parenthood, and could not prove that Planned Parenthood has done anything wrong, the extremist right-wing House leadership team has created an entire new special committee to investigate Planned Parenthood and to provide yet another form for House Republicans to grandstand for political points from their extreme conservative base. The publication is asking the public to sign a petition demanding that Congress be held accountable and to stop wasting taxpayer money on hearings. You can find that petition at the DailyCoast.com website. A lawyer representing the student brutally assaulted by a South Carolina police officer, Ben Field, says that the girl was injured as a result of the officer's actions and that she has a cast on her arm and has neck and back injuries. Stories have been circulating on social media about diverse groups protesting for the reinstatement of Fields, who was fired from his job. But WPFW's Voices with Vision aired excerpts from a town hall in Richland County where a black father, Craig Conwell, was able to give a black father's perspective on the violence, which has been missing from corporate media. We do not touch nobody's child, whether they're white or black, in that manner. I wouldn't put my hands on a white child and throw her across the room, slam her on the floor. Her father would have every right to come and take my life if he choose to do so. And as a father, you put your hands on mine like that. You don't have to worry about him being fired. Because I will put some fire to his behind. So you guys, you are responsible for these people. Sheriff Lott, you are responsible for these people. I have no fear, none whatsoever of you, of the sheriff or any other officer. Because that officer is a particular overseer. Now, I'm not a violent, crazy man. I don't have a record. But I will not tolerate this kind of insanity coming from no man touching a child in that manner. So, South Carolina, you're doing yourself well across the world. You kill nine people in Charleston. You shoot the young brother on Broadway Road for going to get his license and registration. And now you're beating up young girls in school? After film 
Director Quentin Tarantino spoke out at the recent October Rising action against police brutality in New York City. Police organizations and unions threatened to boycott his upcoming movie, and he was slandered in the House of Representatives recently. But Tarantino told MSNBC last night that he will not take back his words and that he stands with the families of unarmed men and women murdered by the police. Anybody who acknowledges that there's a problem in law enforcement in this country right now is considered by law enforcement part of the problem, whether that be me, whether that be Bill de Blasio, whether that be President Barack Obama, who in the case of both Patrick Lynch and David Clark have accused all three of us of this of this action. They're not dealing with the issues that we were talking about, which you would think they'd want to deal with, at least to some degree or another. No, they want to, uh, they want to demonize me. They want to slander me, say, uh, imply that I'm saying things that I didn't say. Um, and then, uh, uh, but, and for what reason? And the re- well, the reason is because they want me to shut up, and they want to make sure that no, no other people like me, prominent citizens, will stand up for that side. A pilot program to grant driver's licenses to undocumented immigrants who reside in the District of Columbia was the subject of a panel last night at Georgetown University. Chantel James has more. The panel yesterday at Georgetown University Center for Social Justice explored the impact of the District of Columbia Safety Amendment Act of 2014, which granted driver's licenses to undocumented residents. Attendees watched a PowerPoint presentation on a demographical study that was conducted by Georgetown and participants in the program, and then listened to a panel presentation that also included participants in the program. Astor Balmencia, an immigrant from Honduras who lives in Ward 4, testified about the powerful impact that the law has had on his life. He said that the driver's license has enabled him to open a bank account, obtain car insurance, and ensure income for his family. Councilwoman Mary Che addressed those gathered. In the District of Columbia, we we don't want to turn people over to INS. Okay, we have people who live here, who work here, have their families here, uh, pay taxes here, and you know are here. Of course, they are in an undocumented status, but that's not our issue. And we also want people not to be afraid of the authorities in the District of Columbia when they can be witnesses to, to matters that we want them to be witnesses to, when they are victims of a crime, a whole variety of things. Participants said that there are flaws in the program, including an up to six-month waiting period that participants are often forced to undergo to receive their license. About 5,000 undocumented residents, including those from Africa and the Caribbean, have benefited from the program so far. Also on yesterday afternoon, there was a program about justice for food chain workers at the headquarters of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. Workers spoke of the injustices of working in the fields where pregnant women have been fired because their employers are unwilling to pay maternity leave and where workers said it is not uncommon for McDonald's employees to sustain burn injuries from hot oil. Luis Chilicuinga, who spoke in English with an English in Spanish with an English language interpreter, stressed that victory was attainable, setting that the minimum wage had been raised to eleven fifty already. Luis Chilicuinga told of the hazard of working in fast food. And the only way I learned of this was living these are the burns that I received while working at McDonald's. This is simple that is the smallest thing that could occur to you that, that we get used to that getting burned so you can see that I'm actually smiling in the picture because that's very small compared to other things and I'm with personas que se les ha saltado el aceite caliente con químicos a la vista there's been people where the oil has come out of them and hit them in the eyes. So people screaming in pain and there was no one there to help them with any first aid kit or any water to eye wash. The eye wash stations weren't even present. They weren't there to, the eyewash stations weren't there for us to use. 
There was a call last night's program to workers to organize and a call to President Obama to raise the national minimum wage to $15 an hour. Workers were encouraged to stand strong against employer backlash, which can include heavier than normal supervision, the cutting of hours, and even firing. The event was sponsored by the Foon Chain Workers Alliance. Thank you, Chantel. In other worker news, there will be an important meeting tonight about building D.C.'s movement for economic democracy through worker cooperatives at the African American Civil War Memorial and Museum at 1925 Vermont Avenue from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. Join Cooperation D.C., the D.C. Black Worker Center, and One D.C. as they share the history and current global context for worker cooperatives. And they'll share about what's being built in D.C. and about how you can be a part of strengthening the local movement. Organizers say that there are examples of low-wage workers in New York City who have formed worker cooperatives and have seen their hourly wages increase from $10 to $25 per hour within just a few years. Worker ownership provides workers with increased control over their work environment, reduced incidents of workplace abuse, and increased job security. Worker cooperatives are also less vulnerable to economic shocks. This is from the organizers. Uh, they would like to to also invite people to a program on Saturday when they'll do a training about worker cooperatives. Tonight's event is at the African American Civil War Memorial and Museum, 1925 Vermont Avenue from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. And those are our headlines and happenings for today. For more of what's happening in the world of social activism in the DMV, I recommend the Activist Alert page at the WashingtonPeaceCenter.org. It's where we get a lot of our information about what's happening. So we'll be right back with our culture and media moment and our new feature, Side Eye. Stay with us. to welcome Amy Alexander and Jamila Bay, who are debuting a new segment, Side Eye, on Election 2016. They'll join us each week to analyze the coverage of those who would be president. Good morning, Amy. Good morning, Jamila. Morning. Good morning, <laughs> Esther and Chantal. <laughs> are you going to well, introduce the segment? Or we just oh, <laughs> you, know, I, you know, I thought that I was introducing it, but... <laughs> Okay. <laughs> All right. Did I? Well, you can just dive in. Uh -huh. I'm sorry. We're uh, uh -huh. well. We're, you know, we're ready to go, Jamila. We, we are ready Take to go. Take it away. We are nearly a year <laughs> to the day until Americans are going to go to the polls and elect a new president. The race is well underway. These last few weeks, well, forgive me, the last weeks of 2015, we're seeing Dr. Ben Carson leading the pack of. Nearly a dozen GOP contenders. The Democrats are watching things play out between former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton and Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. But we're considering in this segment what of the coverage. Uh, Americans who are without subscription cable television or access to an online Internet stream were unable, unable even to watch the debates. Um, while the Huffington Post itself made news months back when they promised that they would only cover candidate and reality show Donald Trump uh, on its entertainment pages, far too many Americans are finding it difficult to discern what is helpful and what is noise. So uh, that's where we come in, I guess. Amy Alexander and I uh, are debuting this segment, uh, Side Eye on Election 2016, and we're, we're going to have some fun with this. Yes, we're going <laughs> we're gonna to cut through the clutter and the noise and the, and the entertainment stuff yeah <laughs> you know hopefully we get to bring some transparency some sanity to the 2016 presidential election coverage and um i guess we we just dive right on in now that we've explained the what and the why behind this um, yes yes indeed 
Yeah, I'm, I'm, Amy. So let's, I'm, I'm disappointed. We, what? What? Well, now what? Well, yes, we're, we're, we're always we're, disappointed. <laughs> I mean, it, it, this where to begin? Yeah, well, it's it's only week one into this official election year cycle, um, and and there there's a lot to make us disappointed. Yes. Um, uh, yeah. Let's start. One of our recurring themes is Beltway views versus everywhere else view, and uh, we should start with coverage of dear Jeb. Uh, <laughs> yes, Jeb exclamation point. Jeb Bush as our centerpiece. Um, this this past Monday, following a terribly inept several weeks on the campaign trail, Jeb's campaign announced that it is resetting. Um, they've even got a spiffy new tagline: "Jeb can fix it." Uh, I imagine there's that yes. emphasis. Yeah, Jeb can fix it. Yeah. So uh, here is candidate Jeb in Florida during an event this past Monday, and he is trying his best to sound energetic. Uh, Jeb Bush took the opportunity to speak in Spanish to the press, and um, from what I understand, people understood him. As a candidate, I intend to let everyone hear my message, including the many who can express their love of country in a different language. Ayúdenos en tener una campaña que les da la bienvenida. Trabajen con nosotros por los valores que compartimos y para un gran futuro que es nuestro para construir para nosotros y nuestros hijos. ¡Júntense! So, wow. <laughs> so, yeah, technical glitches aside. Uh, yeah, was, but, uh, he really sounds energized. I he, guess. Uh, I, I, I spent my time learning French, so my Spanish is non-existent, but... Aside from the technical glitches, what do you think, Amy, is wrong with this picture? Why? I know why I was disappointed, but why is it so disappointing in terms of the press coverage of dear old Jeb's attempt to just hang in there? Right. Well, you know, it's it's um, it's the candidates on the GOP side are really, uh, let's say, unconventional and led by Donald Trump. Their their entire tone is they, they're really sort of sniping at each other and exceptionally trolling right so there's a there's a heightened um, nastiness and I think that is sort of this bad behavior that's sort of being characterized by the way Trump campaigns you know Trump just relishes right mm -hmm. taking shots at people and you know he he'll say well i only i only punch when they when they punch at me well you know if you if you follow enough of his talks he comes at the other candidates um very deliberately and very loudly and so i think that seems to have given the press kind of a free reign to just instantly you know they're not letting these candidates find hit their stride really and so you know, Jeb is trying to reset, and you would think that you know they would, he would be given an opportunity to travel around and maybe try and gin up some, some support and and energy. Um, uh, however, you know the the pundits are basically they've they've labeled him as sort of your sad dad, you know, <laughs> and they talk about his body language. It's like Trump saying from the gate several weeks ago that Jeb has no energy or Jeb has low energy, it's just given, you know, the, the, the campaign journalists kind of free reign to use that same motif and they keep referring to him in this really sort of downer dad kind of way, you know. So uh, a good example of that was actually a few days ago where uh, Rachel Maddow, uh, she actually put together an entire, it was like a miniature segment on Jeb, some of the odd sounds he makes. He has these verbal tics, and on the campaign trail, he will make these sounds, and so they put together sort of a, a smash reel. Uh, let's take a listen to it. I did not expect that this would be one of the awesome things about covering Jeb Bush running for president, but this is a surprising and kind of awesome thing that he does. He makes really weird noises. I mean, it started when he made the sound of Twitter. <laughs> He makes really great noises. They all sound a little bit like a turkey or another kind of bird. He did a different kind of bird when he announced. <laughs> right. So, you know, yes, it is funny. But, you know, these candidates are involved in serious business, we would hope. And so, you know, it's pretty obvious to a smart observer 
that Jeb is in trouble, you know, it still would be nice if campaign journalists and pundits could at least pretend to take him seriously, you know. So I threw a big side eye at that Maddow report, even though, as I said, it is hilarious, as you heard. Um, all right, so Jamila, what is your pick for uh, Beltway View versus Everywhere Else View this week? Well, I I think it should be how, – how about the GOP candidates holding that – uh, not so secret meeting uh, last Sunday night to pull together demands for the networks. Um, a, a very absent Carly Fiorina was not there, but uh, all the other 14 folk uh, vying for the GOP nod to run for president met at a hotel in Alexandria, Virginia, where they frankly couldn't even amongst themselves agree what the demands were going to be. Um, and this was coming out of a, they had a debate a couple of weeks <laughs> yeah. ago at CNBC where they felt like they hadn't been treated. They were treated inappropriately. Right. I mean they got asked questions and that they didn't like such <laughs> yeah, I, oh, yeah. I, I say we should bring over a whole cadre of Irish journalists and show these folks what getting in a, getting in your face what a journalist is but that's right. anyhow anyhow <laughs> that's for another side eye but you know the the where we are today uh Donald Trump uh Benjamin Carson those seem to be the de facto ringleaders in this um which is you know either diabolically brilliant or scary as hell yeah so how is the how is the uh campaign press been covering this 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 uprising by the candidates who are you know they're basically trying to tell the networks how to do its business poorly business. it's being covered poorly it's not the inmates who are just running the asylum the inmates are making mental health policy for everybody <laughs> um the, the the reporters need to go to the network leaders and say look it's our jobs. You don't let these candidates set the terms. Mm -hmm. That's not what we do. We are here to help enlighten America. We're, we're agents of this democracy. We need people to be informed. Being told who we can ask what question of is not making that happen. So it's, it's just, you know, I think the Beltway view is that those demands are that that those demands are legitimate. That probably doesn't ring true for Mr. and Mrs. America at large. Yeah, I mean, I personally am and a little am a little. I'm actually pretty disappointed in my journalism colleagues because they're reporting this uprising from the candidates. Just very as if it's it's like they're not even really so much challenging it. I mean, I've I've read the odd occasional op-ed piece. Uh, there's a writer at the Washington Post, Catherine Rampell, who put a piece up the other day that really sort of took them to task. Like this is really ridiculous, you know. Mm -hmm. But she's sort of alone, and she's not even really a campaign journalist. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. the ones on the trail are just sort of reporting this as if it's you know de rigueur. So. It's 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 disappointing. You know? mm, yeah. I'm not I'm not I'm not mad at them. I'm I'm really I'm just disappointed. Right. So and it, and apparently this is sort of going to be, you know, our expectations. You know, we should. It sounds like we should get ready for much more disappointment to come mm. uh, in the, how these uh, these candidates get covered. So with that said, we are going to uh, close out our, our, our debut segment with um, something we like to call the sighing scale, right? <laughs> so this is where we're going to decide which uh, election-related story of the week uh, has earned the most size of skepticism and disappointment. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Jamila, on your scale of 1 to 10 size, what's your pick this week? I am going to continue with the fact that the inmates are dictating policy for everyone <laughs> running the asylum and running everything into the ground um i am going i i think that's eight size but i will do <laughs> heaving size which come double so i'm going to give four heaving size which is a scale of eight um on our scale of one to ten size so <sighs> heave <sighs> heave and the final <sighs> Oh, my goodness. I'm disappointed. Yes, it's so disappointing. Well, I, I hear you on that front. And, okay, so, so my, my pick for, uh, uh, on our, on our sighing scale this week is, um, it's actually not directly a, uh, a campaign related story, but it does bleed into, uh, 
it got pushed over into the candidates' plates. And it's essentially the tied to a re- big report that came out um, early this week. It's actually very fascinating data showing that middle-aged white males between roughly uh, mid, mid-40s through um, mid-50s um, are at an accelerated rate dying early from either drug or alcohol overdoses or suicide. Uh, from my view, you know, this dynamic is, it's really, it's, you know, it's terrifying. It's, it's, it's sad, but you know, in, in marginalized communities, people of color, African Americans in particular, you know, have always had sort of, uh, higher mortality rates, uh, more instances of experiencing, uh, mortality uh, events are uh, dying early because of stress. You know, it's like when you when you're having time, a hard time, finding a job, keeping a job, you know, keeping your family together. You are going to either self-medicate a lot of the time, which is to say, take drugs and alcohol to help with yourself being able to cope, um, or have stress-related events such as heart attacks. So, um, this news about white men experiencing this sort of uh, lethal distress is. Um, it is is very telling, and I think it's an important indicator of what has happened to the American economy in about the last 15 years. However, the way it got reported was sort of, you know, shock and, and incredulousness from, you know, the, the mainstream, the national press was like, oh, my God, this is horrible. Oh, how could this ever have developed, you know? And so um, I just find that that degree of incredulousness to me was surprising, um, and, uh, you know, for example, when Chris Hayes got the report, and I love Chris at MSNBC, but when he presented this information to Bernie Sanders, it was as if, oh, Bernie, you know, is, isn't this shocking? And of course, Bernie Sanders of, of agrees and says, oh, this is really terrible for, this is a sign that our democracy is having a problem. So, um, I just think that, you know, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that people could be a bit more skeptical and, and possibly a little bit better informed. So that, for me, earned about five heavy sighs. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So, which I won't, I won't enact <laughs> here because we're out of time. Yeah, but, that that does it for us this week. Um, and yeah. uh, for Amy Alexander and myself, Jamila Bay, we are going to be here next week for another side eye on 2016. Toodles. <laughs> okay, with toodles. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll definitely also keep following what is happening with activists protesting against Donald Trump getting all of these kind of media appearances. Um, He's apparently going to be on Saturday Night Live. Uh, There are people who are protesting here in D.C. outside the RNC about basically someone who's spouted very racist uh, views and information and terms and denigrating people given this uh, national platform without any type of scrutiny or or, uh, pushback. Uh, So, um, well, they're pushing back, but we'll, we'll definitely keep following that. Okay, so we'll be looking forward to that next week. Amy and Jamila, I actually have my own sigh and satire related to culture and media. Oh, let's hear it. I want to actually say for uh, our listeners that that Dr. Haight and Jared Ball of WPFW's I Mix What I Like are not nominated for our Che Guevara Revolutionary Being Guided by Great Feelings of Love Award. And I do wish them well in their future endeavors. And those are our headlines and happenings. When we come back, the struggle and victory over the Keystone XL pipeline. Stay with us. Do you know how crazy this election is? <laughs> We got one candidate that says that we ought to abolish Medicaid and Medicare. We got one person saying we ought to have a 10% flat tax that will drive up the, the deficit in this country by trillions of dollars. We got one guy that says we ought to take 10 or 11 million people and pick them up. Where the, I don't know where we're going to go in their homes, their apartments. We're going to pick them up and we're going to take them to the border and scream at them to get out of our country? I mean, that's just, that's just crazy. That is just crazy. This guy can never be president. He says some crazy stuff. Crazy thing number one, he said, Obamacare has got to be the worst thing that has happened to this nation since slavery. I think you're crazy. I 
crazy. You know, $6 trillion of unfunded tax cuts, which he claims will pay for themselves, which is, you know, is, is deep voodoo. And, and that's amazing that, that a major party has gone that far down the, down the crazy path. Come on now, who do you? And welcome back to Thursday's Community Watch and Comment, the On the Ground Edition. I'm Esther Averam. And I'm Chantel James. And Amy Alexander and Jamila Bay are still hanging out with us. Well, the big news this week is that TransCanada asked to postpone consideration of its proposal to build the Keystone XL pipeline, which would bring tar sands oil from Alberta, Canada, to Texas for export. And that news was quickly met with the political analysis that perhaps TransCanada was hoping to postpone the project with the hope of getting a Republican in the, in the White House would approve it. And then the next day, on Tuesday, the Obama administration called their bet and said that Obama would not be granting any extension and would make a decision while in office. These developments mark a major victory for environmentalists who have targeted the pipeline as a line in the sand that should not be crossed if the United States is serious about combating climate change. Well, here with me in the studio to talk about that struggle and victory and what happens next is Jason Kowalski, Policy Director for 350.org, as well as activist and chant leader. You can't right. read that out, right? That's right. <laughs> and 350.org has helped to mobilize a national movement to stop construction of the pipeline. Good morning, Jason. Good morning. So let's start at the beginning. So when did 350.org start working to oppose the pipeline? And, and why did this particular project, of all the oil projects happening, draw such opposition and protest? Well, first of all, it's worth noting that this is a grassroots organizing victory. The fact that we're having this conversation is a testament to the hard work of community organizers, which, which started along the pipeline route. The people who've been fighting this pipeline the longest are indigenous communities in Alberta and along the route who saw this in their backyard. Uh, this pipeline interfered with their livelihood, with their health, with their culture, and that spread. When people heard about that, they started to ask questions. I came to this fight because of climate change. I'm a DC-based activist, uh, and when we realized that this pipeline was a fuse to one of the largest carbon bombs in the planet, we had to get involved. And we had a lot of natural allies who had been organizing for years beforehand to get involved with. Mm -hmm. So I guess the largest protest, which probably drew attention to, of the public to the issue, occurred right here in DC three years ago and then last year. And I think the first one was when uh, the whole White House was encircled by That's right. that was like, good. like what, 12,000 people or something or something like that. Yep. And then last year also. So we have a clip I want to play of from that first uh, March in 2011, uh, Keystone uh, 2011. And I think there's an artist talking on the clip. My name is Cesar. I work with the DC 51 Artist Collective, and today we made a 200-foot-long inflatable pipeline because we wanted to send a really big message because this is a really important issue. Climate scientists are saying that if we build this pipeline and we get we burn all the oil in the tar sands in Canada, it's game over for the climate. You know, so we wrote stop the XL pipeline. We got you know hundreds of people to help us carry it. We marched all the way around the White House, and we hope this message is really clear. We cannot let this pipeline cross the entire U.S. from Canada all the way down to the Gulf Coast. So it's art and resistance. Well, that was that was 2011, and then just last year, I think nearly 400 people were arrested outside the White House, and some of people like tied themselves to the gate with these zip ties, and there was also a, like a human oil slit created with this this tarp, um, and people were like laying on the tarp, and and uh, I think we have some sound from that event as well. <laughs> Keystone Pipeline's got to go, hey, hey! Oh, oh! Keystone Pipeline's got to go, hey, hey! Oh, oh! Keystone Pipeline's got to go, hey, hey! Oh, oh! Keystone Pipeline's got to go, hey, hey
are here today to tell President Obama that we, as young people, elected a climate champion, not another pipeline president. We helped him get into office, and we are telling him today what we want is him to reject the pipeline. Yeah, so th those were sounds from just last year here in the in DC. A uh, lot of students, a lot of uh, the Absolutely. march actually started from Georgetown, right? Certainly, right. So, I, in addition to here, there were more than seven hundred actions in the U.S. alone opposing the pipeline. And what kind of feedback do you get about how these events had any impact on President Obama? I mean, his position on the pipeline does seem to have changed over the years. In 2013, the New York Post broke a story that former EPA Administrator Lisa Jackson resigned because she did not want to be at the helm of the agency if the Obama administration rubber-stamped the project. So this has come a really long way. You know, what do you think has been the turning point? These events or public pressure? Absolutely. I mean, I appreciate you taking us down memory lane because if you look at the politics right now, you'd think that this just sort of naturally evolved, that, that this was the natural course of things. It didn't happen on its own. Organizing got its done. This is proof that organizing works. People forget that four years ago, this was a done deal. Uh, Secretary Clinton personally said she was inclined to approve the project four years ago. There was a poll of insiders done by National Jour Journal, and 94% of them said approval of this project was imminent. Then the organizing started, and the game changed. Right. That's the important story here. And yes, it took hundreds of protests, large and small, led by youth, led by indigenous communities. Some people followed President Obama around all of his campaign stops for years with Keystone protests. Uh, with the it, big rubber pipe? No. <laughs> <laughs> we, we actually made a number of them in different cities. <laughs> okay. So another thing that happened, though, is along the way, a portion of the pipe was completed. And I know that seemed to be very defeating in a way, but people kept fighting. Uh, so this part of the pipeline is between Oklahoma and the Gulf. So just bring us up to date. You know, what has happened to that portion of the pipeline? Is it being used? If it is being used, you know, how much? And how much land has been cleared from, you know, to to build this pipeline? Because before they even had approval to build it, they started clearing land all the way, like there's this swath of cleared land, like how long and how wide in the country? Right. Um I know I asked you a lot of questions, right? No, it's yeah. fine. Yeah. The, uh, you know, there are very real impacts to building that pipeline in people's backyard. And, uh, you know, it, it was a hard a couple of years ago to have a piece of that be built. Um, but the, the big picture is that organizing has stopped the flow of oil from the tar sands to global markets. The goal for the oil industry is to get that dirty tar sands from Alberta to the Gulf Coast, put it on ships, and export it. And until they build the entire pipeline, they can't do that. That oil stays in the ground. They lose investments, and we win. Mm -hmm. You know, I do want to take the time to uh, invite our listeners to call in 202-588-0893, if you want to comment uh, on the Keystone XL Pipeline or, or any of our topics today, 202-588-0893. Now, what impact did the EPA report have? I know the EPA issued a report earlier this year, or was it last year, that said the pipeline would represent a significant increase in greenhouse gas emissions. And, you know, I, I, I mentioned this because oh, President Obama has kept, you know, repeating the fact that the pipeline, the decision on the pipeline would be based on whether it would have an impact on the climate. It's worth noting that to climate scientists, it's been a no-brainer the entire time. Climate scientists, since the moment this was proposed, said this would be a disaster for the climate. One even said it would be game over for the climate. Mm -hmm. James um, Hansen. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. The science was settled. It was a political decision uh, on behalf of the Obama administration as to whether or not they acknowledged that science. And they've moved quite a bit since they started. It's scary to acknowledge 
the gravity of climate science, that we need to keep 80% of fossil fuels in the ground, that's a lot. And f- if you're the fossil fuel industry, that's a lot of lost revenue. That's dollar signs. They yeah. are greedy, and they will stop at nothing to dig it up. They don't care about communities in their way, and they certainly don't care about climate change. Yeah, I think the EPA report said something like, okay, Tar sands emit 17% more carbon than other types of crude, and building the Keystone XL pipeline would be like putting an additional 5.7 million cars on the road each year. And over the pipeline's 50-year lifespan that they were predicting, that would mean spewing 1.37 billion extra tons of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. That's really sounds crazy. So uh, some speculate that President Obama could make a decision before the upcoming U.N. Climate Summit in Paris. So, so what do you think? And I'm wondering how this kind of decision would position him while he's in Paris. I mean, it would certainly be an excellent political move on his part. Uh, President Obama's goal is to go to Paris and get the strongest possible climate deal he can. Uh, that means talking about all the great things he's done for the climate here in the U.S. If he rejects Keystone before Paris, that's an extra bargaining chip in his back pocket to help get more out of other countries like China or India. And what happened with that other pipeline? You know, some people were, while this was all happening, they were trying to build this other little pipeline that would go between North Dakota and Saskatchewan, and it was kind of like the stealth the stealth pipe. Was that built, or what, what's happening with that? It's still in flux. Uh, the bottom line is that ever since Keystone started being blocked, uh, a lot of the finance for tar sands projects in Alberta and for these massive pipelines started drying up a little bit. Other pipelines started becoming more politically vulnerable. There's another pipeline that crosses over uh, uh, the U.S.-Canada border, goes through Minnesota. That's being blocked. There's another pipeline that goes west through British Columbia. That's being blocked. There's another pipeline that goes east through all of Canada to the Maritime Provinces, and that's being blocked. There's a civil disobedience action that started 10 minutes ago in Ottawa right now protesting that pipeline. So this is really a global movement that has a lot to be proud of. And we're sharing tactics. The Internet's helped make that possible, but we're also friends. Yeah. You know, I did have some sound to play from the First Nations people in Canada, but I think that in the, you know, getting everything together, I didn't bring it with me. But I was really struck by them talking about the rates of cancer in their environment, Uh, young people, people in their 30s who have no business being sick and dying, you know, uh, just higher rates of cancer and other types of, of uh, diseases related to these these plants and this mining operation near their traditional homelands. And I think these are some of the people you said who have been leading a lot of this fight. It, it's a real shame what's happening to the, the communities up there. But yeah, the, the, the most impressive thing for me is that you know, these communities are not falling into despair, even though they're victims. They are organizing harder than anyone else on this. Uh, there, A lot of them travel around the country and the world talking about the tar sands, uh, and they're willing to put their bodies on the line in a way that uh, other communities are not to stop their these projects and keep fossil fuels in the ground. Okay, I think we do have one caller. Just uh, say your first name and where you're calling from. Tespa from Arlington. Hi, Tespa. Good morning, my sisters. Good morning, my brothers. Uh, fighting for a just cause by activists. If they keep hope and keep fighting, can get some results. And it is one of the reasons why uh, the pipeline situation is in what we hear is because of you, I want to say congratulations to you, but it works when it's done in America by Americans and Canadians. In the third world, for example, in Ethiopia, in western Ethiopia, a place called Gambella, a guy called Obang Meto, who lives in Canada, has testified in U.S. Congress about the genocide that occurred in Western Ethiopia because there is oil in that place has been denied any kind of result because the American right wing in Congress are very supportive of the genocidal government in Ethiopia. The American extreme right wing 
mm-hmm. is behind the Ethiopian dictators who are who have committed genocide. Okay. You know, Tesfa often calls and he reminds us of the international dimensions of the various things that we're talking about. And, of course, you know, preparing for this show, I couldn't help but run across all the materials around, for example, the the Delta in Nigeria, where the Niger Delta, where the spills and uh, just basically poor operations because really criminal activity as far as I'm concerned by the oil companies have left the land so polluted and just uninhabitable just tremendous human rights violations and it reminded me of of the landscape when I looked at what's happening with these tar sands operations up in Alberta just uh, formerly pristine forests decimated there are these open pits where they have the tailings, the kind of the waste of their their mining operations. Just really horrible, and you just kind of, if you really feel connected to the earth, you can't help but feel like a violation, you know, a major right. violation and, and crime happening. So um, I wanted to know um, how the drop in oil prices uh, now. It's what's still around fifty dollars a barrel, and. That wasn't the case when this project started, and I guess they thought that they would be making lots of money from this project. So how has the drop in prices impacted the, the pipeline project? I mean, it's it's helped our organizing. There, there's no question about it. Uh, it isn't the only factor at play. I mean, if it wasn't for opposition for this pipeline, it would have been built regardless of the price of oil. But it, it's added an extra risk factor that's made it easier for activists to block capital-intensive projects like these pipelines or like Arctic drilling. Uh, it's it's really important if you're building a social movement to really take advantage of these moments. This is a window where we can make a lot of headway really quickly, and we're doing our best to take advantage. So I, I guess the next thing, as we keep watching this, we also know that the UN Climate Summit is coming up, and people might want to know what they can do to press the issue to keep the pressure on to make sure that the pipeline deal is definitely dead, like no oxygen dead. <laughs> and so what can they do? If if I'm just a listener, I'm, I'm a member of the public and I want to get involved, what can I do? Well, if you're in Ottawa, you should go to Justin Trudeau's house and join the civil disobedience there. If you're not in Ottawa, you can go to 350.org slash Paris to learn more about how you can be a part of the global movement that's making waves in Paris. And, you know, in terms of these UN deals, it's worth saying that a lot of it is kind of a done deal. We know it's going to happen. It's going to be pretty good, not enough. Uh, to some degree, window dressing and political theater. To some degree, some actual work. What matters is the organizing moving forward. What got us to the deal in Paris has been a global movement that's come together, making strides on individual projects like Keystone or individual policies like the Clean Power Plan in the U.S. We need more of that, and that's got to be the message coming out of Paris. Not that our leaders got it, because we know that they don't. We need organizing to keep fossil fuels on the ground and power the world with 100% renewable energy. Well, well, I guess if it's not happening at the UN and it's not everything can be accomplished in the streets, what are some of the other, I guess, fronts of activity? What are some of the other places that people can, you know, raise their voice? I mean, another interesting development uh, that came just a few hours ago is the Trans-Pacific Partnership. These trade deals that help corporations and hurt people. Um, You know, it's also a chance to tell the fuller climate story. You know, this isn't just about molecules of carbon in the atmosphere. This is about morality and justice and capitalism and colonialism. Um, You know, we work very hard to knit together a global movement, which is difficult with different languages, cultural norms, uh, different forms of government, democracy, you know, autocracy in different countries. And the TPP is one of those examples of corporations taking rights away from people that's pretty cut and dry and allows us to tell that story that, you know, climate change does not exist in a vacuum. It intersects with these other issues. It, It intersects with justice. Right. And speaking of the TPP, there are some definite, in addition to taking away rights from human beings, it gives corporations the right to sue a country, for example, or a city or a 
or municipality, whatever, if they have enact laws that interfere with their profits. So, for example, I mean, we've seen that already happen. And didn't, like, the Texas legislature, for example, overturn, like, a town's right to, like, ban fracking in their country? That's right. It's exactly like that. Yeah. You know, the... The fossil fuel industry and really any greedy corporation wants to do everything they can to get a leg up on organizing efforts. They know that their name is dirt in the public. They know that they don't have a reputation to stand on, and they need to rely on their money, their lawyers, their lobbyists, and backroom deals. And that's what the TPP allows them to do. It allows them to sue states, cities, countries that try to take action on climate change. Right. Or even something like cigarettes. That's I heard someone give the example of if uh, a city or a country passes laws around cigarette smoking and gives people warnings about cigarette smoking, they could say, well, you know, your warning is causing people not to smoke as much, and we're going to sue you. (laughs) Wow. Right. Well, uh, I've been speaking with Jason Kowalski, policy director, as well as activist and lead chanter at 350.org. And 350.org is one of the organizations on the ground around the country and around the world trying to keep our earth habitable for our children and their children. Thank you, Jason. Thank you. And that will do it for us on Thursday's Community Watch and Comment, the On the Ground edition. I'm Esther Averum. And I'm Chantal James. And Jason, Jason Kowalski, thank you. But Amy Alexander and Jamila Bay, thank you so much. Thank of you. Side Eye. And also I want to thank Michael Byfield, DJ Wahid, and Red Eagle on the board. And thank you for supporting your station for Jazz and Justice. You can reach the show at the updated onthegroundshow.org website where you can now listen to all of our shows and our past shows. Please like our Facebook and Twitter pages at On The Ground Show. Now stay tuned for the news followed by Krista Property on the Thursday edition of Don't Forget the Blues. Raise your voice out there. Peace. (laughs) 